Well, good morning, GT family. It is so good to have you worshiping with us on this Sunday morning, whether you're joining us in person or online. My name's Tim, one of the pastors here at GT, and it, it is an exciting day, as Pastor Steve was talking about, um, just all the different things happening here in our life groups that are happening, and our connect groups, and our focus groups. I wanna encourage you after service today, if you are interested in any way in finding out more information about our groups, and we have many of them, many different ways for you to get involved, uh, I encourage you to go out to the table that's in the lobby. We'll have some people that will help field some questions. We have a, a sheet with all the different information about our groups, and uh, we encourage you to get involved with uh, being the church beyond just what happens on a Sunday morning here. Uh, we believe that the church is so much bigger and goes so much beyond what happens here on Sunday mornings. We love what happens on Sunday mornings. It's a great, great thing, but we believe Sunday mornings should actually be an overflow of what God is doing in our hearts and lives all week long as we as a community of believers gather together. And we learn what it means to do life together. We learn what it means to live life on life in a community one with another. Well, one more time here this morning, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. And our text this morning comes from Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47. And I'm kind of speaking here today, kind of a, a one-off sermon called The Power of Community. And I wanna look at this text here today in Acts 2 in a moment and really just break down some different ideas of why we at GT believe in the power of community. You know, the book of Acts is written by a guy by the name of Luke who writes this book um, essentially as a historical account of the early church. And so it's historical narrative, but as we read it, as we study it, I believe we must see that Luke was intentional not just to write it down as historical narrative in the realm of description, but there's also a lot of things for us to learn from the book of Acts about what God intends for his church. That is not just description, but it's also a prescription that we look at the testimony of the early church, and as we read and study the book of Acts, what we see is Luke doesn't actually officially end this book. He just kind of uh, just stops, and what we believe in that is that Luke's idea is that this is the testimony of the first century church. Let this continue to be the testimony of every generation moving forward as the people of God live in the earth. And in verses 42 through 47, Luke writes about this community of believers that have gathered after the Pentecost event, and they begin to form and develop the early church. And he describes them as this. He says, they, being the church, the people of God, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all believers were together and had everything in common. For they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being Saved. This is the word of the Lord. We may be seated here today. You know, because of the advancements in technology and this cultural moment that we are living in, we are a generation that is more connected than ever, 
And yet there seems to be this rising epidemic of loneliness and isolation in all generations. If you remember back many decades ago when the uh, influence of the internet and the World Wide Web began to kind of come onto the scene, there was this idea that with all this technological connection that was happening in our world, we're going to become a unified world, that we were going to learn things about different places in the earth, with different things happening in the earth, and somehow this was going to unite us as a people. That for people that felt alone and isolated with the advancement in technology, there would be this increase of connectivity and this would help deal with the issues of loneliness and isolation in our generations. Now we have to confess that there are many good things that have happened because of technology. That we can remain connected to family and friends all over the world. We can be a part of many of the events happening in the world, both good and bad, and we can keep up to date on current events. Yet, when we look at this idea that somehow technology is going to bring more unity, and with the increase of technology will create more community, this has actually become a myth. It's interesting to note that according to Statistics Canada, more than one in 10 people aged 15 and older said that they always or often felt lonely when asked about a survey about their current state during 2021. In fact, women were more likely to report feeling lonely than men in 2021. Overall, 15% of women aged 15 and older in Canada's 10 provinces said they felt lonely always or often during that period compared with 11% of men in the same age group. Young people in Canada expressed experiencing loneliness more frequently than older people. In fact, among youth aged 15 to 24 in Canada, nearly one in four young people, that's almost 23%, said they always or often felt lonely. That there's a crisis of loneliness and isolation that is happening in our world, and yet we are living in a time when we look at young people, they are more connected than ever. I remember years ago when smartphones first came out, and I was uh, ministering with young adults, and I was coming into a room where we were gathering, and I saw all these little groups gathering together, and I saw circles of young adults hanging out with one another, but every one of them had their phone out, and no one was conversing. No one was talking, and they were laughing, and they were giggling, but no one was talking audibly, and I remember over and I said, what is going on here? You're all giggling. Oh, my friend across the room just sent me a message, and it's really funny. Or my friend just sent me a, a, a little slide or a thing, and it's really funny. Before it was called memes, right? And I remember thinking, wow, they're so connected, and yet when it comes to basic communication right now, there's, there's a lack. There's a, there's a deficiency happening here. And I remember saying to the one person, you mean that friend that is standing 10 feet away from you just sent you a text message, and you're laughing at a text message that they sent, even though they're standing 10 feet away from you? Why don't you go over and just talk to that person right here? What, what has happened to the conversation? In fact, many sociologists actually believe as they're studying this that simple communication skills are deteriorating amongst many in younger generations. 
and many of the younger generation actually confess that the idea of basic conversation, small talk, actually gives them anxiety. Now, I'm a talker, in case you wondered, right? Like, I, I, I enjoy good conversations. I enjoy spontaneous conversations. I can walk into a store and strike up a conversation with anybody. But I have people in my family that are not that way. And so the idea of basic, simple conversation actually gives them great fear and worry at times. I'm also one that if I want to talk to someone, I'm not a fan of texting them first and let them know that I'm going to call them. Now, I'm learning here in Canada that this is actually more the norm, is that if you're going to call someone, you need to preface it. You need to send them a text and warn them that you're going to call them. I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's like two, ra- thank you. <laughs> that's like two different ways of communicating. No, if I want to talk to them, I'm going to call them. If they don't pick up, I'll send them a text and say, when you have a moment, call me. But I'm not going to text to preface to give them a warning about me calling them, right? What, what has happened in our society that we can't just pick up the phone and say, hey, How's it going? What's happening in your world anymore? We gotta give a preface for everything. And so it's, it's interesting that we're living in this moment where simple communication skills are even dropping, and even though we are more connected than ever, we're living in a time where people feel lonely, feel isolated, feel all alone. And because of this isolation, it's leading to great tragedy and heartache and despair in our world. We're living in a time where even society is starting to look and say, wait, the things that we're supposed to fix our problems haven't actually fixed our problems. In fact, in many ways, they've only enhanced our problems. We're looking in the world and society and seeing all kinds of brokenness and despair and things that three decades ago we thought were going to be resolved, and yet Here we are in 2021, and amongst today's youth, one in four say not at some times they feel lonely and isolated, but almost all the time they feel lonely and isolated. Now this morning as we talk about this idea of community, I believe that we must understand that we're talking about both being and doing. And what I mean by that is we are a community as a church, but we also do community as a church. However, we must note that we as the body of Christ are a community centered around one major truth. And that truth is simply this, Jesus is Lord. And our way of being and expression is found in that kingdom understanding alone. Now, a lot of research as of late has revealed that when people are looking for a new church to call home, one of the top priorities that they look for is finding a community, or put another way, finding a place where they belong. In fact, our our whole heart behind joining life groups, one of the major core values is we want life groups to be a place where people are seen and known. We want life groups to become a place where people actually feel that they belong. It's one of the number one reasons people look for a church. They're looking for a place where they can find community and ultimately find a place where they belong. However, unfortunately, many have this utopian idea of what community looks like. And when the church they are a part of doesn't quite line up with that idea, They often jump from one place to the next, 
constantly disappointed and disillusioned with how no one seems to get what their idea of community should look like. Some have called this the era of church hopping. And in the last couple of years, we have seen in our world a great reshift, a great resettling, many people coming and going. But unfortunately, we've also seen the same realm in the church world where there's this great reshifting, this great resettling, where people are coming and going. And some of that is necessary, but unfortunately, a lot of that, I believe, is actually unnecessary. In the beginning of the pandemic, Barna Research did some study on this that they estimated that one-third of the church is not coming back after the pandemic. One-third of the church not coming back. And they gave many reasons for why. One of those reasons was the people have just fallen out of pattern. They've just fallen out of the habit of going to church regularly. But another reason they gave is because many people said they cannot go to a church and worship alongside of people that they disagree with about things that were posted on social media. And people that at one time worshiped side by side and hand in hand for decades are now saying, I can't go worship beside those people who said that or believed that. They had this utopian idea of what it means to be in community. And when they interact with people that see things a little bit differently or respond a little bit differently in certain things, they say, oh, I don't wanna belong to that type of community. So I'm going to go find a group of people that all think like I think. I'm gonna go belong to a group of people that all see things the way I see things. And they think at many times that they find that place, but then after a couple months of being in that place, what they realize is, oh, these people don't necessarily see everything the way I do. It's time for me to leave again and try to search for that place. And during the last two years, there's research on this. There are people that have literally gone to five or six different churches trying to find community, but can't find that utopian place where they think they belong. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says this. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. The people who love their dream of community, their idea what community should be, those people end up destroying community. But the person who loves those around them will actually create community. You see, the goal of biblical community is not based on our ideal of what community should look like. Rather, in the church, the goal of biblical community is based on the agape or radical, unconditional love that Jesus modeled for his followers. Therefore, biblical community is founded upon commitment and not convenience. And we talk about being a community and we talk about doing community, we're not talking about just convenience, but we're talking about a radical commitment. And I believe that it is only when we face difference or even sometimes conflict with the other that we begin to discover the power of commitment to one another that biblical community is meant to discover. Here at GT, we often say the statement, we say unity is not uniformity. 
And over the last couple of years, we have bought into a lie many times that in order to be unified, we have to agree on all the same things. And that's not reality. We think that the people have to think like we do, look like we do, vote like we do, and worship like we do. And then if those things are all lined up, then somehow we can be a part of community. That's not community, that's conformity. That's not unity, that is actually uniformity. And so in Luke chapter six, verses 32 through 38, Jesus says some powerful words. He says this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do, do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Verse 35, but love your, take it up with Jesus, not Pastor Tim here. All right? He says, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil but be merciful even as your father is merciful judge not and you will not be judged condemn not and you will not be condemned forgive and you will be forgiven give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, we will put it into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. How many people remember that old Ron Canoli song, Give and it shall come back to you? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running. All right, anyways. Um, and then many times we would sing that song during offering time and giving time at our, our charismatic circles, and we would come up the aisle, dance into that song, and give. Um, it it kind of fits with generosity and giving and financial things, but it's really about love. It's really about walking in the way of Jesus toward the other. You, you will receive that which you give, right? If you give love generously, you will receive love generously. If you forgive much, right, or let, let me say it like this, if you've been forgiven much, you should probably forgive much. And so, so many times we as a church, we, we, we think that community is, we wanna find a place where everyone just sees the world like we see it. Or we wanna find a place where everyone has the same passions and desires that we have. We wanna find that church where they're just as serious about worship that we are, or just as serious about biblical teaching as we are, or just as serious about discipleship as we are, or just as serious about community engagement and missions as we are. And what we're actually looking for is we're looking to find a church that will become an echo chamber of our utopian ideas. And that's where we can belong in community. This is making any sense here this morning. This is, this is important for us to understand as we transition here to the fall, that if we are committing ourselves to this realm of spiritual formation and discipleship and doing life on life, we are trying to grow in what it means to have biblical community, and we must understand it means coming into contact with people that are going to be different than us 
But this is actually how we grow in biblical community. Oh, if I could just find a life group that was all introverts, then I would really belong. But nothing might get accomplished. (laughs) If I just found a group full of extroverted people that were wired up and passionate, then I would really belong. But then people would be dominated. And the most dominant person would take over the group. Right? If I just found a group where they all saw the political world like I see the political world, then I would really belong. Not for long. Because things would change really quickly. Right? And so as we talk about this idea of biblical community, we're not talking about creating echo chambers. We're talking about centering ourselves around the truth. Jesus is Lord, and we have opinions, and we have ideas, and we have thoughts, and we have passions, and those are all great and wonderful, and we bring them to the table, but when other people in my groups don't have the same opinions, passions, or thoughts, I don't run and look for another group. No, I lean in and say, you know what? This is what biblical community is actually all about. So a couple things to write down here this morning. When we talk about why biblical community, number one, write this down, Biblical community creates accountability. This is so important. Biblical community creates accountability. James 5 says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Proverbs 27, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Now, Many people love to quote that idea from Proverbs 27. Yeah, iron sharpens iron, but many times I think they miss the analogy. Iron sharpening iron is a clashing of the irons. It's two pieces of metal coming into radical contact one with another, there's a striking. And usually if you're sharpening a knife, the piece of iron that you're trying to use or the stone actually has to have some rough edges to it. And so the writer of Proverbs is not saying like iron sharpens iron. Is I finally found that person that sees everything the way I see it. Yeah, we're just going to sharpen one another. No, you're not. You're going to become an echo chamber. And you're not going to be held accountable because how can someone keep you accountable for something that they agree with you in on everything? But see, when you are in biblical community and you come up against some people that are different than you, or perceive things differently than you. That's actually the realm of iron sharpening iron because there's a clash, there's a little bit of a collision, and then there's a what do I do with that? And unfortunately, over the last couple of years, what people have done with that is they fleed and they've ran rather than, you know what? I need this type of accountability in my life. I need to lean in. In the early stages of 2020, during the shutdown and all the things happening, and I was in the U.S. at the time, I don't know how many times I literally reached out to people who saw things differently than I saw or thought things differently than I thought, and I said, hey, I need to better understand why you see things this way. I'm missing it. And I would go and I would sit and have coffee and lunch because Pandemic only lasted three months down in the U.S. at that time. So, <laughs> But anyways, I would sit with them, and I would listen, and I would hear, 
and I would learn and I would grow and I would see things from a different angle that I had never seen before. I began to realize, even in my own life, blind spots that Tim Woodcock has. Now, they didn't necessarily change my mind on everything, but I learned a lot through that process. I believe that's accountability. I believe that is actually what it means to have iron sharpening iron. I remember I heard a minister years ago say, ministry is great if it weren't for the people. <laughs> I didn't say it, someone else said it, all right? But I remember many times talking to my father who was also a minister and saying, Dad, I, everything's going great, but I'm having challenges with this person in our church. And my dad would say, Tim, that person may be the most important person in your ministry to help you in growing in grace. He would call them grace growers in your life. <laughs> because they, sometimes they would come up and they would say things, and I'm like, what? Of all the things that happened today in the service, what? That's the thing you're worked up about in this moment? And I begin to realize, oh, they're not Tim Woodcock. And that's okay. They see things differently. So biblical community creates accountability and it only happens when we are in relationship with people that are different than us. Secondly, biblical community creates genuine care for the other. Tim Keller says this, there are some needs only you can see. There are some hands only you can hold. There are some people only you can reach. Love is the effort and desire to make someone else everything they were created to be. I remember when we first launched our life groups many years ago, uh, when I was pastoring in Indiana, we began to see a great growth happen in our groups. And we begin to realize a couple of things. Number one, there are people that would attend a life group long before they would ever, ever attend a church. Because coming on a Sunday morning was a little bit of a stretch for them, but coming into someone's home to share a meal and talk and dialogue, that was, that was easier for them. And so people would come into our Sunday morning congregation, I would start introducing myself. And then, oh yeah, we've, we've heard of you. We talk about your messages on Sunday and, and uh, we've been attending so-and-so's life group for over a year, but this is our first time coming on a Sunday. The other thing we began to realize is that there were needs happening in the church that many times as a pastor, I couldn't keep up with it. I didn't know that so-and-so was going through certain things. And I remember finding out later that so-and-so went through this hard time in their life and I come up almost apologetically saying, I'm so sorry, I didn't even know that that was happening in your life. I'm like, oh, it's okay, our life group really leaned in in that season and helped us out. And so this statement, there are some needs only you can see. There are some hands only you can hold. What a powerful statement that biblical community creates genuine care for the other. And so we learn what it, what it means to journey together in life and how to lean into people's uh, great times and high times, but also how to be present with people in the most difficult and low times. Thirdly, Biblical community creates mission. The greatest way to accomplish the mission, I believe, of the kingdom of God is when biblical communities are formed and they learn what it means to love each other the way that Jesus loves. Once again, that agape, radical, unconditional love. And then they extend this to the hurting, broken world around us that still views love as some sort of transaction between people. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. 
You see, I believe as countercultural Christians, we are called to be an alternate city of God within the earthly city that we live. Whether we believe that city is good or whether we believe that city is bad, but we are called to spread the culture of this heavenly city to the entire earth, for it shall become the joy of all the earth. As a church, as a community of believers, we live in a city, we live in a region. But the great testimony of the church for 2,000 plus years is that no matter where they live, they actually gather as an alternate city, as a unique city, as a countercultural city. That they live in a city, but they're a different type of city. And this has always been the great intrigue of the church for 2,000 plus years now. This has always been a great part of the mission of the church, that gatherings happen and communities gather, and people from the outside look in and say, yeah, they're from Burlington, but they're a little different. They're from the Holton region, but they're not like everyone else in the Holton region. They're from Hamilton in that area, but the they're different than a lot of other groups and communities that live in Hamble. There's something intriguing about the way they live and do life. And this is what happens when we form in community, we begin to live on mission. In John 13, Jesus said these words, they, the world, will know that you are my disciples by the way that you vote. They will know you are my disciples by whether you are a Calvinist or an Arminius. They will know you are my disciples by whether you allow female preachers or not. No. Jesus says, they will know that you are mine by your love for one another. This has been the great defining thing of the church for 2,000 years. Wow, those people, those Christians, they don't live in transactional love. They actually live in this radical, unconditional love because they profess the one that they follow is the one that demonstrated that to the world. And even when they're greatly persecuted, they don't respond with, I'm gonna fight you back. I want to fight for my rights. No, these Christians, man, they're weird because they talk about loving their enemies. And the more they're persecuted and the more they experience hardship, their response is, you know what? I'm going to love you unconditionally. And it revolutionized the empire that they were in in the first three centuries. In the fourth century, there was a emperor by the name of Julian who lived from AD 331, or ruled, sorry, from AD 331 to 363. And he was writing down some critiques about the early Christians. He referred to them as impious Galileans and atheists. The reason they were atheists is because they only believed in one God. <laughs> and in the Greco-Roman world, they, they believed in the plurality of gods. It was openness to everything. And he wrote this. I want you to catch these words by the Emperor Julian critiquing the early church and recognizing what is happening under his rule and his empire. He says this, we must pay special attention to this point and by this means effect a cure. 
For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. Like he thinks, oh, they're only helping people out because they recognize we don't do a good job of helping people out. That's the critique that's happening here. And they have gained ascendancy in the worst of their deeds through the credit they win for such practices. For just as those who entice children with a cake and by throwing it to them two or three times induce them to follow them, and then when they are far away from their friends, cast them on board a ship and sell them as slaves. By the same method, I say the Galileans, the Christians, also begin with our so-called love feast, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, or hospitality, or service tables. For they have many ways of carrying it out, and hence call it by many names, and the result is that they have led many into atheism. And so he went on and he decreed a uh, decreed a food distribution system to try and compete with the, the early Christians. And he goes on, he says, says, why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism. I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues. For it is disgraceful that when the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Wow. Did you catch that? This morning as I read from Acts 2, and we talked about the belief in the culture of the early community, the early church, I've often heard, especially ministering in young adult atmospheres for many years, the idea that people say, well, the Bible promotes socialism, so our government should therefore be socialist. Because we see it here in Acts chapter two. But actually, that's not what we see. When we read the book of Acts and we see this radical generosity that is happening in the early church, we don't see a government-enforced mandate upon them to be generous. We actually see the opposite. We see out of this radical love for the other, they were generous, and that actually confronted the empire on the lack of their generosity. Did you catch that here? So it wasn't like this government and foresight, and I'm not here to debate whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm simply saying the book of Acts doesn't promote that. It reveals the early Christians were so generous, so loving, so giving, and they did it with the stranger, and they did it with the other, and they did it between male and female, and high socioeconomic and low socioeconomic, and they did it amongst all different people groups, and they shared everything they had with the other, and over the course of a few centuries, all of a sudden the government started saying, wow, these atheists, these impious Galileans are caring for the poor far better than we are. We better catch up to it. So many times I think that even we as Christians, we, we look so much to, to government to do things when really the charge for the early church is you give them something to eat. 
right? Jesus in the Gospels with the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples come and say, hey, Jesus, these people are getting hungry. It's time to send them away. Jesus turns to them and said, no, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And then they start to provide excuses for why they can't be generous. Well, all we have is five loaves and two fishes, and we beat up a little boy to steal his lunch to present that to you as an excuse. And Jesus says, what you have is all I need. Give me what you have and watch what I do with what you have. So we don't need to have everything in the right place, in the right space, and all the right wealth and all the right resources to live in community and reach out on mission to the other. No, we need to learn to simply take what we have, present it to God, and then watch what he does with the miracle. And one of the greatest ways we do this is we give of our time. Pastor Tim, I don't wanna belong in community. People annoy me. I know it happens at times, doesn't it? But if you want iron to sharpen iron, you need to learn to be around people that see things differently than you do. We had a beautiful example of it even here this morning. I won't go into detail where something was said that I went, thank you for saying that. That's a different perspective that we need to hear. And once again, I believe when we live this, when we walk this out, the world looks at it and says, man, those Christians, I don't understand about everything about them, but they are unique people. They are a peculiar people. They are a set apart people. They are a different type of city in the midst of this city. So real quickly, let's stand to our feet here this morning. This is kind of a, once again, it's a one-off, so it's a little bit all over, but, but I hope you catch the heart behind this. For 2,000 years now, here has been the mission of the church. You know, in the 90s and early 2000s, everyone talked about, we need a mission statement. We have a mission statement. It's existed for 2,000 years. Love God, worship, and love people, make disciples. So I, I love it that when I came to this place just over a year ago, that that was the mission statement of this church. We are a church that is living for God and living for people. Now many times we like the idea of living for God. It's me and Jesus, me and the Holy Spirit. I love just my time alone with God. That's awesome, how are you doing with people? Well, I'm good with the people that really think the way I think. Really? You're not living for people. So if we love God vertically, it's inescapable that we must learn what it means to love people horizontally and learn what it means to love people that are different than us. And I believe the greatest way that we learn this is by being in intentional communities. We grow in accountability, we grow in caring for the other, and then we learn to live life on mission. And so the defining marks of the church for 2,000 years have been simply this. The church has always been a place of presence. Presence with God and presence with one another. The, the church is a place where people belong. The church has always been a place of formation, a place where we grow. And then thirdly, the church has always been a place on mission, a place where we serve, where we are sent out 
on mission. So this morning, I wanna close in prayer here today. And really the altar call is not responding to a place up front here today, but really the altar call is, okay, what do I need to do to be intentional about doing life with people? Because sometimes I get along with them great, but sometimes I see things and I hear things and I see model things and I'm like, ah, I don't know what to do with that. And how do I grow in this idea of loving the other who is so differently than me? The greatest way, go out to the table after the service, find out about the different groups that are happening, whether it's a focus group, whether it's a life group, and learn to do life with people that aren't you. And when they do something that is so not you, don't run. Don't flee. Don't disengage. Lean in and say, help me better understand what you mean by that. Help me see things from your world. This has been a crazy week, hasn't it? You know, with the queen passing away this week, and in some ways it feels like a little bit of an end to an era. And there are some people, you know, my grandma loved and adored the queen. My, my mom loved the royal family. And so it's like, wow, it feels like a little bit of an end to an era. And yet many years ago, I actually learned from some people who see that whole system differently than I grew up seeing it. Hello? And where some people are going, oh, and there are many great things done through I Get the Queen, but there, there's also some things that we have people in our church that maybe see that and go, I'm okay with it being done. Because it doesn't represent the greatest history for me and maybe my people. And what do we do with those conversations? Wait, what? Yeah, people see things and experience things differently than we do all the time. And actually, that's the beauty of belonging to the church. I want you right now, before we close, I want you to look around this room here today. Look around, to your left and right. Look around, keep looking around. I love that you feel awkward about this. I have the anointing of awkward. Now listen, I wanna let you in on a little bit of a secret. You just looked at some people that, that look differently than you. You just looked at some people that think differently than you. Brace yourself, grab your pew for a moment because this one's gonna be hard. You just looked at some people that might vote differently than you. You just looked at some people that experience things in the world that are different than the way you experience things in the world. And you know what? You need them and they need you. And this is what it means to journey in biblical community one with the other. We embrace each other, not on the echo chamber of thought. We embrace each other on the fact that we're all here and we're professing Jesus is Lord and Tim Woodcock is not. Jesus is Lord and my ideas are not. Jesus is Lord and my political party is not. Amen? So let me pray over you here today. Father, I pray blessing. I pray that your Holy Spirit right now would go beyond my ability to communicate, my ability to articulate, 
And Lord, that you would help us as a church to grow in this understanding of what it means to be on mission with each other. What it means to be in biblical community with each other. What does it mean to actually have iron sharpening iron and grow in accountability. I pray for a spirit of unity, not uniformity, not conformity, but biblical unity that is centered around the one truth, Jesus is Lord and we are not. I declare your goodness and your blessing on your people. Let them go in the power and strength of your might. Let them walk in your ways and help them to grow and being in community one with another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bless you. Have an incredible week. If you gotta go, we bless you.